Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, everybody. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back. This is the OIS Podcast. The I in OIS stands for, anyone? Innovation. That's right, innovation. We're going to have a great conversation about innovation today with Dr. Steve Charles of the Charles Retina Institute. Steve Charles, of course, is an OIS stalwart. He's at every meeting and has done so much for the field of ophthalmology. He's performed over 36,000 vitreoretinal surgeries, lectured in 50 countries, operated in half that amount, 25, delivers lectures, over 1,000 speaking trips, has, has over 100 patents, and uh, just keeps on going. Uh, the, the man is, uh, is, is driven to create and to innovate, although that's a term that uh, we'll uh, talk about in this podcast. Is innovation what it needs to be, uh, what would Steve Charles do today if he were uh, a young man entering the uh, the workforce or, or pursuing the college track that uh, would lead him to a, a fruitful career? Are things as they were when he started out long ago, uh, really pursuing a, a dual track of engineering and uh, and medicine? So, it's a, an interesting conversation. Steve is a, a fascinating guy, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Before I let you go, don't forget OIS Retina is happening in Vancouver on July 20th. So please go to ois.net to register. Now let's get into this conversation with Steve Charles. Well, Steve Charles, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I generally like to open up this uh, these podcasts with a question as to how you got into ophthalmology, and I know it's a story that you've told before. So, I would like to hear very briefly as to your your path to ophthalmology and and the career path you've taken. But then I'd like to follow up with a question, uh, and I'm wondering whether or not you would have taken that that same path today. But let's start off with the, with the young Steve Charles. How did you find your uh, your way? into doing what you're doing today. I don't want to limit you by saying you're an ophthalmologist because you do so much more. Well, thank you. I, uh, my, my maternal grandfather, Harry Johnson, was a, a Swede and a mechanical engineer, the designer, and I spent a ton of time with him growing up. My dad was a college professor when, when my dad was in the Navy in World War II. I spent almost five years with my grandfather, and, and I spent a lot of summers with him, and I had a great relationship with my dad, but, but I really looked up to this guy. He taught me to swim, taught me to row a boat, taught me to drive a car. Tom, Tom, when, when I was a first grader, by the way, I was driving his Packard, and he was a design <laughs> engineer and, and ran a big factory to build diesel engines. It took me to work every day. So I sat there with the mechanical drawing set as a first grader, second grader, so on and so forth, trying to design engines, thinking I was a designer. So it was zero question about me wanting to be an engineer. Then about seventh grade, I was reading Boys Life magazine, saw a Heath kit, said, think I'll build one of those. And I started teaching myself electronics by building high-end stereo systems for people for money, for even for movie theaters and, and so on and so forth. And uh, not movie theaters, excuse me, uh, live drama theaters and, you know, and building audio patch panels and amplifiers and the like. And uh, so I taught myself electronics. So it was crystal clear I wanted to go to engineering school, and I did. And I started a mechanical but I worked always in electronics. I always I worked at a TV station. I was a broadcast engineer. 
I was a recording engineer, so I'm constantly doing electronics while studying mechanical engineering. And today you call the combining those two mechatronics, which is really what I do. But I was searching for an application domain for that skill set. I wanted it was crystal clear I wanted to be a designer. I didn't want to sit in a cubicle, uh, you know, by myself and design, you know, a one wheel bearing for an airplane I would never see. And um, and so I was at the University of Oklahoma at the time and. In the catalog, it said um, engineering parentheses uh, pre-med, biomedical engineering parentheses pre-med. So I asked my hardcore engineering advisor who had come out of the oil patch what it meant, and he said, look, it's new. Make what you want. He said, let me tell you something. Don't be a biomedical engineer. They don't design anything. He said, be a real engineer. You know, continue on in mechanical and electrical. And he said, keep current the rest of your life. Don't give up on this. He said, so many guys go to engineering school, get medical school, and then stop the engineering once they learn how to make a ton of money. He said, don't be that guy. And I said, I have no intention of being that guy. So I've continued to do engineering all the way through med school in Miami. Fortunately, the world's number one institute, Baskin Palmer, was where I went to med school. My dad was on the undergraduate faculty. And so I built instrumentation, built pupilography machines, built ERG machines, built EOG machines, built recording systems for various experiments in the lab. And it was superstar place in retina vitrectum. He started there with Machimer under Dr. Norton's guidance. So I had an opportunity to participate. I certainly didn't invent vitrectomy, but I had an opportunity to come in on the ground level, so to speak. And so when I went to NIH, although my appointment was after my residency at Baskin Palmer, my appointment was to find VEGF uh, by taking vitreous out of PBR in diabetic retinopathy cases. Uh, in fact, I worked with the biomedical engineering branch. It wasn't my official job and came up with endophotocoagulation and the real-time B-scan. So I continued to do engineering throughout med school, internship, residency, my two years in the NIH and in practice. Would I do it again? Absolutely the same. I the love same. it. I wouldn't do anything different. I've been on vacation in 22 years. I haven't seen a movie <laughs> in 30. I, 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 and people say it's my passion. Well, it's not just that. It's a moral obligation. Well, what was it about ophthalmology? Was it, uh, was it the fact that it's the mechanics of the eye, something you can really fix, get in there and tinker around with? Well, my grandfather on the other side was a colon and rectal surgeon, and my godfather, my dad's oldest brother, never had kids, and he was a colon and rectal surgeon. And one might think I would go that path, but I'm a fastidious guy. I like neat, clean, organized, <laughs> and so the thought of uh, operating on <laughs> colon with rectal surgery was, Check, uh, was not appealing. But going to you know being in med school in Miami and being exposed to the the heyday of the Baskin Palmer Institute was so inspirational, and of course it was all about retina there it was just natural so i decided to be an ophthalmologist within a week of starting med school i didn't have any money i lived at the va free because i could i drew blood at the lab at four o'clock in the morning so i got room and board at the va and i hung out with the ophthalmology residents many of whom became very famous uh, danny jones and joel glazer and so on and so forth and they gave me broken instruments to fix so I could use them on animal surgery, and they did a lot of kidney transplants and dogs there uh, at the VA in Coral Gables uh, in the University of Miami system. And so they, they, if I assisted with them, and instead of I didn't have a house, or, you know, a wife, a girlfriend, an apartment, a car, all, all I did was go to the lab and operate if I wasn't in med school class or getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to draw blood. And so I taught myself how to do cataracts and glaucoma surgery on dogs by reading the Peyton and Stillwell Atlas. So I was entrenched in ophthalmology from literally the first week of med school and never never gave it a second thought to try anything else. So you answered my question that you would do it again. I guess I guess my follow up is is 
Could you follow that kind of path today uh, where you're basically carving out this, uh, this specialty of yours, this career of yours? Do you think that the uh, opportunities are still there for, for young Steve Charles to, to do what you're able to do? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that if you look at the, I mean, there's two different sort of sides to the, 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 the good news. And yeah, um, let, me, let me think through this a little bit. So in biotech, there's plenty of oper- unmet clinical need, as they like to sure. say. You know, there is no treatment for for uh, dry AMD yet, for example. Uh, that's the huge unmet need. Uh, wet AMD and, and diabetic retinopathy, the, the anti-VEGF compounds have just been clearly a miracle drug. Napoleon Farrar is a brilliant genius that brought us something very special. And uh, but the retinitis pigmentosa and, and, and the, the single gene disorders like that. You know, we've got a long way to go, although there's been a little breakthrough in gene therapy. So plenty of unmet need on, on something that's not in my expertise, and that's the, the, the gene therapy uh, biotech side. Plenty of uh, room to grow in stem cells. I'm working with both the NEI team, which is for dry MD, and I'm their surgeon, as well as a company called Opsis, part of Cellular Dynamics, uh, through the uh, under the auspices of David Gam at University of Wisconsin, so plenty of opportunity stem cells. On the medical device side, there's still opportunity, but you know OCT comes along once, uh, you know vitrectomy comes along once, uh, cataract surgery, FACO comes along once, and there's been so much uh, improvement that it's it's unrealistic to expect that another huge breakthrough like that is going to happen. That said, so it's sort of in it's now it's in the refinement stage. And so once something's relatively mature, uh, laser delivery is past its prime, um, uh, cataract surgery is very, very good and very mature, and probably presbyopia is the unmet need there uh, because even refractive errors are are less and less with wave front uh, uh, interoperative aberrometry and variety of other techniques. So so in short, um, I I think the, the, the biomedical device side has will flatten out a little bit uh huge unmet clinical need in glaucoma nobody knows the cause and the treatments are empirical so plenty to do plenty to do lots of opportunity do the educational channels available to young people today you know teenagers going into college are they still there to be able to to create their own path or are they becoming you know biomedical engineers kind of trying to combine the both and, and, and maybe, again, can't follow. Biomedical engineers don't get design jobs. If you look around, companies hire mechanical or electrical or people with optics backgrounds. They don't um, uh, hire biomedical engineers in the design space. So there's a lot of disappointed kids that get a degree in biomedical engineering and expect to be hired on by you know, the Medtronics of the world, and, and, and they don't get that job. They can get jobs in quality engineering or in product development. Now, excuse me, product sort of uh, as uh, product managers, that sort of job, uh, or lab testing of devices. But you got to really push hard in mechanical engineering to make a difference, or electronics, or both. And uh, actually, a lot of physics people become better engineers than biomedical engineers do. And that, you know, it hurts people's feelings to hear that if they majored in biomedical engineering, but it's realism. So the opportunity is there, but people need to be deeper in engineering if they're going to make a dent from the design, specifically from the design side. But there's lots of roles on the team for people that are not designers, but but help with the product development process and, and, and FDA approval and the like. So your your suggestion to someone would be get get the engineering degree and follow the MD route just like you did? Yeah, but, but even more than that, my, my, what concerns me is the idea that if you got the degree, now you know that. 
You don't know that. You, you learn the language to allow you to study that and learn that. And so on continuous education about the clinical problem set, solutions other people have, uh, and uh, learning technical competency. If not, I mean, why, I think why I've been successful uh, in, in, in four generations of machine, the Occutome 8000, the MBS, the Accurate and the Constellation with Alcon and the Photocoagulation B-Scan, it's because I've continued to talk constantly to the best, of the brightest and best engineers, gone to a gazillion manufacturing facilities, and I'm constantly studying. I'm sitting here in my bedroom at my apartment looking at uh, you know, 100 books across from me on, on optical system design and birefringens and speckle and, 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 and fluidics and, and all sorts of things. So, I'm, so one of the things that gets me, people think the degree is the, is the end game. The end game is, is, is when you die. It's all about uh, continuous education. If you're going to make an innovation, whether it's biotech or it's device side, you've got to learn not just some superficial words. You've got to really study it in depth and, and talk to the brightest and best. You'll never catch up to the best PhDs if you're, if you're you know, a physician um, because you're also practicing medicine or you don't have clinical relevance. So people are always saying to me, well, you know, geez, why don't you just do design engineering? You're good at that and give up surgery. Well, then you don't know what you're talking about. You're not valid on the podium. You're not valid advising the company if you're not doing lots and lots of surgery and seeing real-world problems. So that's kind of my approach to it is to, to do both. So what do I don't do? I don't do any golf, tennis, sailing, movies, <laughs> wine tastings, vacations, uh, you know, collecting things. I, I, I work and study. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's not a prescription for everybody. But, if you know, I don't remember how holding a fishing rod or a golf club or, or a wine glass uh, contributes to uh, device development or biotech. So when you're filling out a form and, and the, uh, the question comes up, occupation, what do you put down? I put engineer, surgeon, teacher. <laughs> you can't put all three. You got to pick one. My dad was a um, my dad was a college professor. He was always a department chair. He was a great speaker. I was his projectionist. So I'd go with him. He was in the humanities, an art historian. So I have zero interest in that in his specific discipline. But his style of education and speaking was very frank and and very you know entertaining. And and so I've tried to emulate that style and improve on my speaking skills and but but i don't go look up stuff on the internet that give talks on it you know uh, i don't borrow slides from anybody else i don't show pictures of patients uh what i do is is to speak about something that i really understand uh which is the the, the how these machines work and and whether it's it's endophotocoagulation or the vitrectomy system or ultrasonics or, or, or how our gases and silicone all work. So I want to understand at great depth how they're made, how they work, what the physics, what the engineering principles are behind it, and be able to articulate that uh, to the physicians while articulating the clinical problems that really need to be solved so we don't have stupid me too dollars wasted on stupid me too projects. Uh, so we help guide the companies to do what really needs to be done. Hey everyone, Tom here. I told you up front about the uh, OIS Retina meeting happening on July 20th in Vancouver. If you register before June 20th, which is coming up, you'll pay only $995. It's a $100 savings off the full price. So please don't wait. Go to ois.net 
and register for OIS Retinor happening in Vancouver on July 20th. Now let's get back into this conversation about innovation with Steve Charles. Do you do you like the term innovation? I do, but 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 it's I call it aspirational innovation. When I <laughs> earlier in our discussion said, well, I want to be innovative. I said, okay, well, what what technology do you know anything about? What problem do you tend to solve? So, I, what I like is problem solving, and I like to emphasize that. So, yeah, I mean, America's now number eleven in the Bloomberg Index in terms of innovation. That's tragic. We're number 21st in science, technology, engineering, mathematics graduates. So, so I'm, it's about being just immersed in technology instead of focusing on the business plan and the pitch uh, and going public and getting rich. Solve real problems and learn real technology. It is always more complicated than you think. And, and, and dialogue with other scientists that are not just out there to make a buck, that they're out there to help a patient. That's, that's a, what I like to push. That's an interesting point. I mean, do you think that, that those, we've fallen in those ratings because the educational quality isn't there, or is it, or is it because innovation has sort of become its own industry and, and, it's, and it's become its own little buzzword? I think it's, I think it's more cultural. Yeah. I think uh, we're, America, to some extent, is a post-prime uh, culture. Uh, I work a lot with inner city kids, and I work in the domestic violence space as a volunteer. I'm on a council and help folks that have been victims. And when I talk to inner city kids, I say, do you think A's are good, like A's in school? And they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, so is America, U.S. of A, like the A country? And they're like, oh, yeah, America's number one. And I said, do you know where we are in science, technology? We're number 21st. I said, so the A can stand for other things, adornment, amusement, and addiction. I said, we're not our drug, we're not our clothes, we're not our cars, you know, we're not our music that we like. I mean, the idea that it's commonplace to talk about binge watching, really? You spend a whole weekend watching some stupid reality show? You've got to be kidding me. Interesting. You, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, it's it's so so we spend too much time in in adornment and amusement. We're too much walking around trying to look cool and 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 sit passively being entertained. And that's across our culture. And physicians are no exception. You know, I, I know guys that were number one in their med school class. That I only go to the academy if it's in California, so I can go to Napa. So how many lectures do you go to? Well, I kind of sign in to maybe one or two, but mostly I spend my time in Napa. Really, number one in your med school class? That's what you do? Really? I don't get it. Yeah, interesting point. So um, w when it comes to problem solving, I'm curious, how do, you, how, do you know that you've, how do you know that there's a problem that needs to be solved? Good question. When I was at NIH, I had no power, but it, I was asked the same question. They said, where should we target our dollars? The number two guy asked me that. The number one guy wouldn't have asked me. But, but I said, the frequency failure product. And he said, what do you mean? I said, common diseases that we have crappy outcomes. And so there's a tremendous amount of resource. Look at the, all the, 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 the talk about Spark Therapeutics and their market cap about Luxturna for a really rare disease, RP65 variant. Yes, it's exciting for those families that have it, but we've got a gazillion patients with dry AMD. We've got, we 
have no treatment for PBR, proliferative vitreo retinopathy, uh, and those are really common. I mean, there's a 20, 75% success rate round numbers in PBR surgery, and it's it's the number one cause of failure in retinal detachments. So we still have problems like that. Um, presbyopia is an unmet need, but it's people aren't blind from reading glasses, and so. So I think it's all about common diseases that we don't do well. Glaucoma. We don't, I mean, uh, the, the prevalence of glaucoma, now that we're uh, injecting patients every month as retinal specialists, it's just stunning to me how many people have advanced glaucoma and, and, and the miserable success rates of glaucoma surgery. MIGS has been in advance, and the OIS uh, meetings have been really, really good at getting the word out in MIGS, and, uh, and I'm always delighted I attend every single OIS meeting and and I and I'm even though I'm not a glaucoma guy I recognize the problem and I recognize the importance of approaches like that but at the basic level we don't really understand what causes glaucoma and we don't have a specific treatment like we do with a with wet AMD and DME and retinopathy and prematurity when we have the anti-VEGF compounds that really get at the root cause of the problem and have an extraordinary success rate. So how do you look, so we're, you, you identify a problem by, by looking at a disease that needs to be, be treated, but how do you sort of break it down into really identifying a potential solution to, to, to cure the disease? I wonder how maybe, are you looking aggressively at glaucoma or another disease and, and sort of how do you, how do you approach that problem? I, I personally am not focused on glaucoma because it's not my competency, but, but, but my friends in glaucoma, I always ask them, Okay, so you have ex excessive uh, uh, um, um, matrix material in the trabecular meshwork. Um, why? I mean, uh, yeah, that's a description, not an explanation. You know, why don't you have something like our anti-VEGF compound that acts directly on the primary cause? Why don't you find out the primary cause? So that's if I were in the glaucoma space, that's what I'd work on, as opposed to yet another way to make a hole in the eye. Um, and and I mean, you know, we we lived with it retina forever. It's bad. Cook it with a laser. You know, fry it. You know, really. You know, then along comes Napoleon Farage and Intech, and we've got who identifies VEGF and makes Vastin and Lucenus, and then and Regeneron makes Ilea, and and all of a sudden we have this extraordinary safe and effective treatment for all the neovascular disorders. We need that kind of breakthrough in, in, in glaucoma, and we need that kind of breakthrough in PBR, without question. So what areas are you looking at, and, and how do you, again, how do you look to, for solutions? I'm personally focused on, I've, 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 I've been involved with four generations of machines, the Occutem 8000, the first linear suction machine that was at Cooper Vision, then Alcon bought them, MidLabs, which is the MVS machine, Alcon bought them, and then uh, and then Alcon bought Innovision from me, and and that's where the Acuris and the and then the next generation of Constellation came from. So intimately involved four generations of machines, and now we're developing the next generation machine that will replace the Constellation and, and the Centurion FECO machine, and I'm intimately involved in that. So on the surgical device side, that's it. And then I did not in, invent um, True Vision, which is uh, branded Ingenuity and been improved by their relationship with Alcon. I'm a, I use it all the time. I'm paying a lot of attention to it. I bought my own out of my own pocket. And so I'm working on even better ways to do visualization in the operating room. So I'm, uh, my, I like to save. In fact, Alcon adopted this language. I see it better, do it better. So how do you, again, approach that problem? I mean, are you, do you look at an image and say, this could be better here, and how do we approach that? Well, I'm, you know, I, 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 I would 
I'd have to foray a little bit into intellectual property. I can't talk about it, but but in short, I've I've taught myself optical system design and photonics, and and have looked at a variety of of imaging schemes from the microscopy world, from the military world, and and um, have a bunch of ideas on how to improve what we're doing in visualization in the operating room. And I'm making that a major target, other than the next generation Fecovit machine, in my work exclusively with Alcon. I don't consult for any other companies, and I haven't since '91. And that's why I've, I'm, I can be embedded as an engineer with them, and and as and and sit and talk at the engineering level with them instead of being a traditional mm-hmm. ad board member or, or KOL. Uh, bo- both of which are, by the way, very useful. And you know, I'm I'm, I'm so I work. I'm, I'm actually called the lead KOL, so I work with the KOLs. I, uh, it's, they're incredibly important. That said, they don't get to get inside and say things about operating systems and sensors and motors and bus architectures and things that I care about and development environments. So I'm very fortunate that by working exclusively with Alcon and by continuing to study engineering and improve engineering skills that I'm really embedded at the engineering level. That's where I wanted to be, and Alcon has enabled me to do that. I'm very fortunate. So what is your sense of the, the state of uh, innovation in, in med tech overall? Uh, is it, uh, you know, we hear a lot about financing. We hear a lot a lot about reimbursement, you know, and this, and this kind of goes beyond, I guess, the problem solving in the early, early stages. But do you, do you feel as if there's still... Um, a drive and a push to to solve problems like there may have been I think there's a drive but we had a problem and that is that the whole emphasis on innovation and entrepreneurship drove a lot of people to get an MD and a degree I mean excuse me an engineering degree and then an MBA uh and and then the focus uh, and and it, an unintended consequence of that were the incredible number of Me Too companies. TAVR, which is endovascular aortic valve replacement, there were some, I don't have the exact number in my head, 28, 30, 35 companies involved. Basically, one winner in Edwards Life Sciences, my friend Mike Masalem, uh, bought that company. Uh, as I recall, I think there was a Medtronic patent infringement, and they had to cut a check to them. So basically, there's two companies that have endovascular. So what happened to the, all the, the, the venture dollars that were spent on all the other, uh, whatever it was, 30 companies or more, they failed. Uh, same thing with uh, with uh, renal artery, uh, de- renal denervation was supposed to be the, the, the greatest thing for recalcitrant hypertension. Again, 30-some-odd companies, and then a trial, a Medtronic trial, I think it was called the Simplicity Trial, didn't meet the primary endpoint, and everybody folded. And so 30-some-odd companies pursuing the same thing, and all the business plans and pitch decks and the people on the podium said, well, we're, we're going to, you know, it's sea change and paradigm shift and a new world order, and we're, we're the only ones that have the answer to this, and that we're going to have a trillion-dollar market. And, 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 and after a while, the venture people say, you know, we've heard this story before, and it looks like there's 35 people all claiming to be innovative, all doing the same thing. And and so, a tremendous amount of money got spent uh, on on Me Too companies, and venture capitalists were very honest about that on a, at, at these Wilson Sonsini seminars and other ones, uh, J.P. Morgan that I've attended, and they said, you know, we we blew it. We we invested a lot of money listening to the hype about uh, new you know sea change or whatever paradigm shift and and. Uh, 
unmet need. And, and we ended up funding a lot of Me Too companies and all the capitalists lost. And we've got to return money to our investors, and we weren't able to. And, uh, and so we've got miserable rates of return, and so there's capital flight. So that's a big problem. With the regulatory aspects of this is massively exaggerated, in my opinion. I think the FDA does a great job. Uh, if you work collaboratively with them, and instead of waiting till the last minute and laying complexity on their desk and being irritated, they don't approve it in 24 hours. It's just wrong. I mean, so a collaborative approach to the FDA and understanding their issues and that they're there for safety uh, is. Uh, I, I don't see the FDA as a barrier. Um, I, I think that the the whole Me Too company thing has uh, has created a lot of backlash from the financial community, and, and appropriately so. And I mean, when you look at big pharma, for example, ten percent excuse me, twenty percent of the drugs people use are on patent. What does that mean? That twenty percent of the whole vo- volume of drugs uh, drive a hundred percent of the R and D because generics don't support any R and D. So when you hear politicians saying, Oh my God, we need to switch everybody to generics. Okay, so you want generics with your kid that's got your child that's got leukemia, is that Saint Jude's hospital? Really? You want a generic for that? Oh well no, I want the best of for my kids. Well, you want generics, what, for those other people, uh, Congressman? Uh, so uh, it's, it's stunning to me that somehow people think generics are a good thing. They're not. Um, they don't contribute to, to our research and development. Now, so that's me feeling bad for big pharma that does it right, uh, as opposed to the generic companies. But if you switch that another way, some company comes out with a statin, Another company comes, which met an unmet need. So the first statin comes out, or, or whatever the first epilepsy drug comes out, and then another company makes a, a, a slight change in the molecule so they can get a patent on it, and and it solves the same problem in the same way. It's it's almost indistinguishable. So again, the me too problem, the imitation problem, as opposed to saying let's emphasize yet another unmet need. But but look at the risk that big pharma takes. Average clinical trial in neurodrugs for Parkinson, Alzheimer's, uh, and MS costs something uh, just short of a billion dollars. I think it's $850 million on average, eight and a half years, and there's a 90% failure rate. So they take enormous risks, which is not the case with with the generics. And uh, so that's another whole issue that, that uh, makes the development process uh, very expensive and very challenging. Great point about the, the Me Too's and going back to the renal innovation. We're seeing Medtronic is, is making some headway with a new trial centered around the technology they, they acquired from Ardian. But you're, you're right, all of those other entities that created to, to sort of follow that renal innovation uh, 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 approach uh, were abandoned or, or, or didn't receive funding and, and had, had most of them have died off. So in, in the, the, the Me Too, I wonder who you assign more blame to in the, the Me Too issue in that is it the innovators who are, aren't really innovating if they're sort of following the, the, the lead of someone like Guardian? Well, if the primary drive is I want to make be innovative, make money, go public, sell a company so I can, you know, have a wine collection, you know, uh, that's different than uh, I, I don't sit there and think, I wonder how much money I can get. When can I sell this? And I won't have to work anymore. What, what I think about is 
you know, holy crap, we see these patients, we're not helping. We, we've got to do something. Oh, my God, you know, I, I lay awake at night thinking about the patients we don't help. And, and, and I, when I see them in the office, I apologize. I said, you know, we really don't have something for this. We're, we're, we're trying. I'm not a mad scientist. I, 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 I am in some space, but your problem needs to be solved by these guys that work in stem cells and are much smarter than I am. And we've got, and, and so sitting and thinking about real problem solving, like my friend David Gamm at the University of Wisconsin with Opsis, as opposed to press releases all the time, and, 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 and it's all about your market cap. And, and I get it that you have to have return on investment or nobody's going to let you do it again. And, 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 and it's, you know, I, when I, we had an Arvo symposium, day-long symposium on, on innovation and, try to, uh, and, and to address some unmet needs, and, and it was the day before the Arvo meeting. And, and, it, and what struck me is I said, okay, translational research, a lot of people say it, oh, bench to the bedside. I said, look, the definition of translational research needs to be changed. It's about a market share leading product that helps patients, period. Not about a white paper, you know, not about, you know, getting on the podium at some meeting, not about a patent, uh, not about a paper in the scientific peer-reviewed literature. It's about helping patients. So if you really take some, uh, if you really get it right in translational research, if you really get it right in innovation, it helps a whole bunch of patients like Lucinus and Ilea do and like Petrectomy's done and like FACO and IOLs have done um, and MIGs are starting to do. So there's, we've had some cool things, DMEC, DSEC, much better than PK, so there's some innovation on the cornea side. Uh, but uh, <laughs> there's plenty to do. There's plenty of opportunity. I just like to see the resources focused not just on somebody getting rich but but on the right things. All right. Well, well, final question. You know, we believe that children are our future. Let's uh, let's plan out the future of innovation. What what if you could fix about uh, our innovative culture and maybe get it back online? Well, it starts early. I think that we we don't have enough uh, technical competence in our culture. There's there's too many physicians who made a lot of money whose kids are now investment bankers who you know transfer money from one pile to the other and take some off to for or hedge fund operators. And I would love to see all them uh, being uh, going to the Harvard MIT program or to you know, Stanford or University of Illinois or one of these wonderful technology schools and and, and really having some technical competence and then digging in to solve these problems. But it starts early. You've got to emphasize science, math, engineering, technology from day one in school. And, and I know innovation and the robotic stuff sounds exciting, and it is. But it's more to me about about uh, really learning the technology so you can apply it and cons- and, and, and dialoguing with other scientists and uh, even a little outside your your you know your comfort zone so that you can learn new things and really uh, b- b- transfer technology from you know say uh, the 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 rheumatology world to the uveitis world or from the the you know lidar world to ot as an example does that make sense uh, i think it does yeah so all right great well it's uh it's you you've led a wonderful career thank you for all the uh the ideas you've developed and all all the uh innovation you've led and uh i guess we'll see how things uh continue in the future hopefully we'll uh we'll bring ourselves up a few notches on those uh, on those worldwide rankings. I sure hope so. And I greatly appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your audience. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Steve Charles, thanks so much for joining us on the OIS podcast. Thank you, podcast listeners, for joining us. 
please do us a favor and subscribe and also do tell your friends. And of course, reach out to me. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. You can email me, tom at healthag.com. Healthag is the word health, followed by letters egy.com. Healthag also happens to be the producer of the OIS podcast and our beloved OIS events. So uh, thanks again for joining us. Don't forget it. We'll uh, see you in Vancouver on July 20th at OIS Retina. And tune in next week for another great tale of innovation.